Welcome to Truthfinder. This program searches for crucial answers to critical questions about belief, non-belief, and everything in between. Here is your host, Dr. Elijah Sadafor. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. We are continuing our episode that asks the critical question, was Darwin wrong? And we answer it with a resounding yes. That yes says Darwinian evolution by natural selection is not true because natural selection does not exist. Last time in part two, I provided the first two reasons why natural selection does not exist. The first is because natural selection lacks explanatory power, and the second is because Darwin's theory is predicated on too many assumptions. Now I will provide the next three reasons why natural selection does not exist. So why natural selection does not exist, reason number three is because natural selection does not explain life at the biochemical level. Natural selection claims to explain the diversity of life, but it does not, in clear and definitive terms, describe how it interacts with the molecular machinery that makes life possible. Without said elucidation, natural selection is powerless. Therefore, Darwinism's worst nightmare is when it is actually forced to explain, step-by-step in precise detail of exact stages, how the molecular machinery that operates in a single cell evolves into a regulated conscious and functional organism with billions of cells, dozens of interacting systems, and a degree of complexity so awe-inspiring that it makes an iPhone look like the crude tinkering of a toddler. Ultimately, natural selection does not provide an exact explanation for how complex biological systems are produced. It only speculates. This speculation relates not only to how adaptations survive, but to how the genes that code for those adaptations survive as well. Granted, for a 19th century scientist like Darwin, it was far easier to postulate that something external, like natural selection, was causal in speciation. Why is that? Because back then, science was largely ignorant about how a cell works, the fact of DNA and the information it stores, and the mind-boggling intricacy of internal cellular machinery. And now that we do have an awareness of how complex life is, as well as a well-established knowledge of genetics, modern science has made a Darwinian explanation for molecular life astronomically harder. Thus, with the large obstacles that science has erected, our Darwinian explanation for life is desperately anemic and fails to close many gaps in knowledge. But you don't have to take my word for it. Consider what English biologist Mei Wan Ho and Peter Saunders state in the Journal of Theoretical Biology, quote, It is now approximately half a century since the neo-Darwinian synthesis was formulated. A great deal of research has been carried on within the paradigm it defines. Yet the successes of the theory are limited to the minutiae of evolution, such as adaptive change and coloration of moths, while it has remarkably little to say on the questions which interest us most, such as how there came to be moths in the first place, end quote. John McDonald, a geneticist at the University of Georgia, says, quote, Those genes that are obviously variable within natural populations do not seem to lie at the basis of many major adaptive changes, while those genes that seemingly do constitute the foundation of many, if not most, major adaptive changes apparently are not variable within natural populations. 
end quote. What this crucial statement from John McDonald tells us is that within populations, there are a bunch of genes that do vary, and those genes code for traits that are largely unrelated to what we would call big evolution. It also tells us that there are many genes that we expect to be the source of major evolutionary changes, but these genes do not vary. In plain English, this informs us that, as defined, natural selection does not provide a plausible explanation for macroevolution. Why? Because those genes that would cause organisms to evolve tend to stay exactly the same. Moths may change color, for example, but moths stay moths. Even Jerry Coyne, the man who wrote Why Evolution is True, states, quote, we conclude unexpectedly that there is little evidence for the neo-Darwinian view. Its theoretical foundations and the experimental evidence supporting it are weak. End quote. In his 1996 book, Darwin's Black Box, biochemist Michael Behe explains that life is based on molecular machines, some that serve as highways to move cargo from one place to another, others that act as ropes and pulleys, and others that act like switches. In short, Behe provides ample evidence that very complicated, highly sophisticated molecular machines control every cellular process. Hence, in order for natural selection to be a plausible explanation for the diversity in nature, we have to know how it works specifically when it comes to its activity on molecular machines. Is there concrete evidence to suggest said mechanisms? No. In fact, uncrossable gulfs exist on the smallest scales of life. In Darwin's Black Box, Behe writes, quote, Biochemistry has pushed Darwin's theory to the limit. It has done so by opening the ultimate black box, the cell, thereby making possible our understanding of how life works. It is the astonishing complexity of subcellular organic structures that has forced the question, how could all this have evolved? End quote. He then goes on to say, quote, if you search the scientific literature on evolution, and if you focus your search on the question of how molecular machines, the basis of life, developed, you find an eerie and complete silence. The complexity of life's foundation has paralyzed science's attempt to account for it. Molecular machines raise an as-yet impenetrable barrier to Darwinism's universal reach. Although Darwin's mechanism, natural selection working on variation, might explain many things, however, I do not believe it explains molecular life. End quote. What Behe then elucidates is how life works. He begins by explaining how vision works on the biochemical level in one cell. This intricate, highly complex pathway involves multiple steps and multiple molecules interacting in highly specific and organized ways. It includes interactions with 11 cis retinol, which changes its configuration in response to light. It involves the interaction of multiple protein molecules, including rhodopsin, metarhodopsin 2, arrestin, transducin, and phosphodiesterase. It involves membranes that tightly regulate sodium ions across channels. It involves transmission of electrical impulses to the brain. It involves switches that regulate which proteins are on or off, and it involves resetting the system when the process is complete. Of course, I have simplified the explanation to prove a point. Behe writes, quote, 
the relevant steps and biological processes occur ultimately at the molecular level, so a satisfactory explanation of a biological phenomenon, such as sight, digestion, or immunity, must include its molecular explanation. Each of the anatomical steps and structures that Darwin thought were so simple actually involve staggeringly complicated biochemical processes that cannot be papered over with rhetoric. Darwin's metaphorical hops from butte to butte revealed, in many cases, to be huge leaps between carefully tailored machines, distances that would require a helicopter to cross in one trip, end quote. Thus, how vision works inside of a cell involves highly complex and specified machinery. This poses a huge problem for the gradual development of complex systems. Why would natural selection go to all the trouble of selecting for all this complexity when it merely needs to settle for reducible simplicity? If the goal is mere survival, why go to all the trouble of fashioning an eye when all you would really need to do is stay with one cell and pass your DNA on by asexual reproduction? Why not have an eye that uses one protein instead of dozens? Darwinian biochemistry had knowledge that stopped at the level of the gross cell. So the origin of species was a speculative solution for a seemingly simple problem. Now that we do know how life actually works, explanations are still speculative. Because evolution by natural selection does not explain the origin of novel biochemical functions, it cannot explain life. On top of all of this, Behe makes the additional claim that certain biological systems are irreducibly complex, meaning that they have many well-matched interacting parts that all work together to contribute to basic function. Thus, removing any one component makes the system shut down. Examples of systems that are irreducibly complex include light-sensitive systems for vision, the cell's motor system, the blood-clotting cascade, cellular transport, the immune system, and maintenance of cellular DNA. Even more examples of irreducible complexity include aspects of DNA replication, electron transport, telomere synthesis, photosynthesis, and transcription regulation. In discussing each of these systems and after rigorous scrutiny, Behe concludes that each system could not have developed in gradual Darwinian fashion and that there is a veritable silence from the scientific community as far as suggesting plausible alternatives. Behe describes these obstacles as mountains and chasms that block a Darwinian explanation of life. Natural selection can only act on systems that are already operational, in other words, those that are useful right now. It provides no gradual explanation for how these systems developed, but evolution by natural selection demands such, lest it be called a miracle. As Behe argues, as the irreducible complexity of a system increases, the likelihood of its developing gradually drops precipitously since all parts have to be simultaneously functional for the system to work. This rules out an indirect or gradual acquisition of function. Additionally, for Darwinism to explain irreducible complexity, it requires an explanation for physical precursors. Like, for example, how phosphodiesterase came to operate in the vision system. Natural selection currently does not explain physical precursors. It is only assumed to act when phosphodiesterase already exists. Darwin himself wrote the following, quote, 
if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down, but I can find no such case, end quote. But modern science has found such a case. In fact, it has found many such cases inside of the cell. So, 150 years after Origin of Species, what can modern science tell us about the evolution of molecular life? The answer is, not much. As Behe again writes, quote, Molecular evolution is not based on scientific authority. There is no publication in the scientific literature, in prestigious journals, specialty journals, or books, that describes how molecular evolution of any real, complex biochemical system either did occur or even might occur. There are assertions that such evolution occurred, but absolutely none are supported by pertinent experiments or calculations. The assertion of Darwinian molecular evolution is merely bluster. End quote. In the end, Behe concludes the following, quote, Biochemistry has, in fact, revealed a molecular world that stoutly resists explanation by the same theory so long applied at the level of the whole organism. Neither of Darwin's starting points, the origin of life and the origin of vision, has been accounted for by this theory. Darwin never imagined the exquisitely profound complexity that exists even at the most basic levels of life. End quote. There have been many who have supposedly debunked or disproved what Behe claimed in Darwin's Black Box, but none of these attempts actually addresses Behe's challenge to provide a clear, step-by-step, testable explanation of how natural selection works at the molecular level. There are many who have simply restated the problem or speculated as to what may possibly happen, but failed to provide concrete evidence. Ultimately, appeals to natural selection will not work if natural selection cannot explain anything. As molecular biologist James Shapiro wrote in National Review, quote, There are no detailed Darwinian accounts for the evolution of any fundamental biochemical or cellular system, only a variety of wishful speculations. It is remarkable that Darwinism is accepted as a satisfactory explanation for such a vast subject, evolution, with so little rigorous examination of how well its basic theses work in illuminating specific instances of biological adaptation or diversity, end quote. Yes, it is remarkable that the presupposed scientific explanation for the diversity of life explains so little, but can wishfully speculate so much. Behe has more faith than I do in natural selection, because throughout all of Darwin's black box, he expresses his hope to see a more robust, precise explanation for evolution by natural selection at the biochemical level. He thus ends his book with positive expectations for the future. I only believe in what I know and what I can sense. What I know is that on the biochemical level, natural selection explains nothing. What I can sense is wishful thinking. So, when it comes to explaining life at the molecular level, because natural selection does not explain anything, it amounts to nothing, and it certainly is not a credible scientific theory. What it is, is a yearning of the heart that desires a natural explanation for life, but this yearning has no place in the realm of empirical science. Why natural selection does not exist reason number four, because mutations are insufficient to explain genetic novelty. 
In part one of this episode, I discussed how natural selection works. I explained that for it to function, there had to be heritability or the fact that variation exists because of genetic variation. This genetic variation then affects the probability that an organism will leave offspring. If natural selection is ascribed as the non-random selection of random variants, what is the entire selection process predicated on? Mutations, which are random changes in DNA. Random simply means by chance, and by chance means we don't know what really is the cause of something. Because mutations are random, there is no force driving them. Thus, as the Japanese mathematical biologist Moto Kimura argued in The Neutral Theory of Molecular Evolution, he wrote, quote, The great majority of evolutionary change at the molecular level, as revealed by comparative studies of protein and DNA sequences, are caused not by Darwinian selection, but by random drift of selectively neutral or nearly neutral mutations, end quote. Natural selection only preserves what is working out well right now. Therefore, the only mechanism by which new functionality can arise is by chance mutations. If there were no mutations, and thus no new genetic material, no new adaptations could arise and be preserved. It is irrelevant then if you non-randomly choose something that is generated by chance. The fuel that drives the process of natural selection at its core is chance. The critical dilemma here is that chance is synonymous with ignorance or nothingness, so if natural selection is predicated on random mutations to fuel its engine, then what we are really saying is that natural selection is based on nothingness, and when you base a theory on nothing, what you are left with is nothing. Chance is not a cause. Chance is only an effect of mathematical computation. Chance is merely descriptive. It possesses no power, and therefore, it does not produce concrete effects in real life. Chance is not a causal agent, and it is meaningful to us in so much as it describes the likelihood of one scenario over another, like who is more likely to win a game. So, the argument that natural selection is bogus because it is based on chance is perfectly valid and reasonable because that is exactly what it is. Even Darwin concurred that chance is insufficient to explain variety in nature. In Origin of Species, he wrote, quote, Mere chance, as we may call it, might cause one variety to differ in some character from its parents, and the offspring of this variety again to differ from its parent in the very same character and in greater degree. But this alone would never account for so habitual and large degree of difference as that between a species of the same genus. End quote. Yet, despite the fact that chance is no thing and has no causal power, chance is conjured up to explain natural selection. Whenever a scientist appeals to chance as something causal, it is the ultimate magic trick that is meant to distract us from blatant ignorance. Consider what Richard Dawkins writes in The God Delusion. He writes, quote, A complicated thing is one whose existence we do not feel inclined to take for granted because it is too improbable. It could not have come into existence in a single act of chance. We shall explain its coming into existence as a consequence of gradual, cumulative, step-by-step -step transformations from simpler things, from primordial objects sufficiently simple to have come into being by chance. 
we must resort to a series of small steps, this time arranged sequentially in time, end quote. Remember that natural selection is defined as the non-random selection of random variants. So without random chance mutations, there is nothing to non-randomly select. In other words, without chance mutations, the engine of natural selection has no fuel and doesn't go anywhere. Yet, there are many explanations that deny how totally dependent natural selection is on chance, and these explanations blatantly muddy genuine facts with veiled lies and flat-out deception. In The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins continues and writes, quote, There is a big difference then between cumulative selection, in which each improvement, however slight, is used as a basis for future building, and single-step selection, in which each new try is a fresh one. If evolutionary progress had to rely on single-step selection, it would not have got anywhere. This belief that Darwinian evolution is random is not merely false. It is the exact opposite of the truth. Chance is a minor ingredient in the Darwinian recipe, but the most important ingredient is cumulative selection, which is quintessentially non-random. The reality is this. Chance is the major ingredient in the Darwinian recipe because without random mutations, there is nothing to select. To suggest otherwise is to deny how evolution by natural selection is presumed to work. To suggest otherwise is not merely false, it is the exact opposite of the truth. An appeal to chance is an appeal to ignorance, and ignorance is defined by its lack its lack of knowledge, its lack of understanding, and its lack of explanatory power. Because mutations are random, they are not directed or lawful in any way. A mutation can be very small and refer to when one of the building blocks of DNA switched to a different one. A mutation can also refer to an error in copying DNA that accidentally leaves out or duplicates a nucleotide or to a big chunk of DNA being left out or added. So, mutations can be tiny or big. It is critical to understand that at best, a single mutation can only produce a minuscule change in an organism and that a cell recognizes a mutation as an error. This is why mutations that have significant effects are almost always dangerous. Do you know what cancer is? In many cases, it is caused by a mutation that prevents a cell from regulating cell divisions so tumors can thrive unchecked and spread. This explains why, in more than half of all cases of cancer, people have a mutation of the P53 gene. This gene suppresses tumors, so when this gene is mutated, it cannot work as well and cancer can flourish. Another example is Lynch syndrome, which also increases a person's risk for developing many different types of cancers, including colorectal and endometrial cancer. The cause of Lynch syndrome is a mutation in the gene that fixes DNA that was copied incorrectly. The point is that DNA is like a computer code. It contains instructions for complex, highly specified biological functions. Mutations do not tend to improve this functionality. They tend to destroy it because undirected random changes happen in very specific and deliberate gene sequences. This is why cells have built-in mechanisms that actively work to reduce the number of mutations that occur and to repair the mutations. Furthermore, mutations never increase genetic information. 
they are merely variants of existing genetic code. In order to go from one simple cell in the middle of a pond billions of years ago to a modern human, what you need is an explosive increase in the amount of genetic information. Mutations tend to pollute existing genetic information. So then, how can natural selection explain how it preserves dangerous mutations that destroy functionality in order to beget beneficial adaptations that increase functionality? How does natural selection explain the fact that mutations are actively worked against by the cell to be removed and repaired? If a blind watchmaker went through the process of non-randomly selecting dangerous mutations, why is it plausible to think that he could mold complex life from simple life with bad DNA? And by the way, if the source of new genetic information is mutations, then what's the point of natural selection? Mutations make natural selection redundant. The only way to explain the origin of species is to explain the origin of variation. That is, novel genetic information that imparts a survival advantage. Natural selection does not explain the origin of new variation. It only explains the preservation of existing traits. So if all the new genes that code for new adaptations are created by mutations, what is the point of natural selection? Do favorable mutations exist? Yes, purely favorable mutations do exist in the same way that there are people who have been struck by lightning and survived. The most common scenario in reality is to have a mutation that benefits you in one regard while harming you in another. An example is inheriting sickle cell disease, which does impart immunity to malaria, but also increases the risk of early death due to clogging of sickled red blood cells in your arteries, among other causes. The point is that purely favorable mutations are astronomically rare, and to appeal to natural selection as a process that selects favorable mutations over time quickly approaches mathematical impossibility and a broad disconnect from plausibility. As Gertrude Himmelfarb writes in Darwin and the Darwinian Revolution, quote, Favorable mutations are not only small but exceedingly rare, and the fortuitous combination of favorable mutations, such as would be required for the production of even a fruit fly, let alone a man, is so much rarer still that the odds against it would be expressed by a number containing as many noughts as there are letters in the average novel, a number greater than all the protons and electrons in the universe." But there is more to the story of bad mutations. Mutations are not a brutal fact that explain adaptations by themselves because random mutations cannot explain specified biological function. In a well-known paper published by the scientist and philosopher Stephen Meyer, he addressed the problem of how organisms developed an arrangement of different anatomical parts that work together in different anatomical systems. His primary focus was to look at the Cambrian explosion, which was a relatively brief geological error when many new animals with many new different body plans arose. What was Meyer's ultimate conclusion? That random genetic mutations fueling natural selection do not provide a plausible causal explanation for the origination of complex life from simpler forms of life. 
How did Meyer reach this conclusion? By establishing that current research demonstrates that proteins are highly specified in regard to how they work in a cell, and this specificity is intimately related to biological function. And by biological function, I mean what the protein actually does in a cell to animate life. A highly specified protein requires highly specified genes. If those genes are changed by a mutation, then a highly specified protein is no longer specified, it can't perform properly, and life falls apart. So, Meyer's basic conclusion is that, for simple life to evolve into complex life, natural selection does not provide a proper causal explanation because mutations do not explain novel, specified biological functions in advanced life. The bottom line is that any explanation for life demands more than the mere fact of mutations. It demands an explanation for the effects of those mutations. Mutagenesis experiments reveal that by chance, the likelihood of obtaining the correct gene sequence that specifies biological function in a short protein is roughly 1 in 10 to the 65th power. This correlates to other studies that have demonstrated similar odds of random mutations generating the genetic information required for specified proteins. What these odds basically mean is that a random mutation generating the genetic data needed to code for a functional protein is a scenario possible only in the imagination and not in reality. It is analogous to flipping a quarter on Pluto and hoping for it to land precisely in a specific parking meter machine in the middle of Times Square. Ultimately, the proteins that make life possible are very sensitive to change and biological function tightly limits genetic variability. Furthermore, when a protein has a change in one amino acid, this tends to adversely alter function, but when a protein has changes in many amino acids, this invariably leads to loss of function. But the march of macroevolution requires just that, many changes in many amino acids. The unavoidable reality is that the specificity of proteins themselves suggests they could not have arisen by a blind, undirected mechanism that is reliant on chance. Meyer continues to mount evidence against natural selection as a plausible mechanism for speciation by pointing out that random mutations would also have the difficulty of supplying information for new types of cells, and these new types of cells would require new specialized proteins that operate in new specialized systems. Such a feat requires coordination of biological function that far exceeds the mere generation of new random mutations. Such a process requires the selection of integrated systems, not genes. Meyer's ultimate conclusion, then, is that the origin of novel genetic information that codes for specified biological function exposes a gross lack of explanatory power of natural selection. For modern evolutionary theory, even if new genes arise from old ones or if new genes arise from non-coding sequences, the same barrier to novel information generation still exists. If a genetic algorithm of any kind seeks to generate specified biological function, it requires some form of direction or foresight. In other words, it cannot be purposeless and blind, which is exactly what natural selection is. Mutations are insufficient to explain genetic novelty because no matter how they are defined or described, they will be reliant on chance, which is nothingness. 
Generally speaking, mutations also tend to be enemies to life, and no plausible explanation exists as to how natural selection acts to use undirected mutations to manufacture not only specified genetic information, but also proteins with specified biological functions that work in specialized cells that collaborate as members of integrated biological systems. Does natural selection adequately address or explain any of these essential phenomena? It does not, because a 19th century philosophical assumption has proven incapable of keeping up with modern science. Natural selection lacks substance and real explanatory power because it does not exist. Get the bold and revolutionary new book from Dr. Sadoffel titled, Why Evolution is Not True Because Natural Selection Does Not Exist. Go to truthfinder.org and download your free ebook today. Download, read, and share. Why Natural Selection Does Not Exist, Reason Number 5, Because Adaptive Power Is Internal, Not External. The author of Darwin's Black Box, Michael Behe, wrote another book titled The Edge of Evolution. In that book, to the best of my knowledge, Behe does what no other skeptic of natural selection does, describe where natural selection has actually worked. Behe describes how sickle cell disease developed in Africa. He writes, quote, It is crystal clear that the spread of the sickle gene is the result of Darwinian evolution, natural selection acting on random mutation, end quote. In this case, those individuals with the sickle gene survive malaria, and most of those without it do not. However, Behe concludes his book by clarifying what evolution can and cannot do, and what it can do is truly modest. The sickle gene is something relatively simple that involves a change where two proteins join together, so in this case evolution is plausible. But most of the other impressively complex structures of life, he says, are far beyond our Darwinian explanation. This evokes the question, is the survival of those with the sickle gene evidence of natural selection? Let's say there's a man called Cletus. Cletus lives in an environment with other men and women who live their own lives. Now let's say that Cletus has a unique gene called anti-X that codes for a special protein that floats around in Cletus's bloodstream. Then a catastrophic pathogen called virus X breaks out and kills 99% of the people in Cletus's environment except those people who have the anti-X gene. Why is that? Because that gene codes for a specific protein that makes those people immune to virus X. In other words, there was unique environmental stress and only certain people like Cletus, who had a minor adaptation, the anti-X gene, were able to survive. Thus, people who are anti-X had a survival advantage and therefore they were the most fit, defined by their survival. Now here is the question, what caused Cletus to survive? Every effect must have a cause, so what ultimately caused the effect of survival? Was it something in the environment? Well, no, because the environment killed almost everyone. We know that Cletus survived because of internal adaptive power, that is, because of a protein coded by his DNA. 
Had Cletus not had the anti-X gene, he would have died, and this explains why everyone else lacking this adaptation perished. The environment is not a great savior that selects survivors. The environment is the problem that killed people. There was something specific in the environment, Virus X, that merely exposed an internal trait, and that internal trait is what caused certain individuals to survive. Survival was not ultimately caused by something external acting on Cletus, and to ascribe such is an exercise in imagination, not science. Cletus had a built-in function that caused him to survive, and his survival was defined by his internal adaptive power interacting with the environment. So no, internal adaptive power does not mean agents are independent of the environment. It simply means that they can have many interactions in said environment, but what is ultimately causal in survival is internal, not external. And guess what? If Virus X never existed, Cletus would still have an inborn genetic ability to resist Virus X and be able to pass that gene on to his children. This ability is independent of his environment. What is quantifiable is the fact that Cletus has a gene that codes for a trait and the effect is immunity to Virus X. What is not quantifiable is the spirit of natural selection. So is the spread of the sickle gene evidence of natural selection? Absolutely not. It is evidence of individuals with the inborn ability to reproduce and pass on their DNA to their offspring, regardless of whether they are exposed to malaria. To invoke the mystical power of natural selection, one would actually have to demonstrate in clear, specific, and defined ways how natural selection actually works on the cellular level to affect survival. As the previous reasons have described, no such explanation exists, and as I have described in the last example, no such explanation is needed because adaptive power is internal. Additionally, natural selection dismisses the reality that organisms are causal agents that act. Ultimately, the functional power of an organism exists within an organism, not without. An agent that is intelligent and conscious is the cause. The effect is organisms which have variable traits, acting to reproduce and pass on those traits that are heritable. Because an organism already has a built-in mechanism that imparts abilities, an external pressure is no longer needed, nor a nebulous process that works through time. If selection is defined as an external force that mediates a process involving internal mechanisms, what natural selection is really saying is hogwash. It is taking the responsibility as an external pressure for that which already exists internally. Natural selection, then, is nothing more than a bait-and-switch where an imaginary external force steals the credit for work it never does. Reality tells us that whether you are a lion in the wild or a human in New York City, there are many environmental conditions that we must deal with. We do not live in paradise, so there is scarcity in the environment. Seen in this light, the environment is not there to help us. It is what limits us. Yes, nature is blind, which is exactly why it has no interest in whether organisms survive or not. Organisms are therefore active, conscious agents that of course act in their environments, but are not drones that are passively molded by their environments. 
Reality can tell us many things about the internal adaptive power that organisms have because they can be detected, observed, measured, and verified. In other words, internal adaptive power can be explained. The only way to discern whether an external adaptive power exists is to do the same, but what I have demonstrated thus far is that natural selection does no such thing. Why? Because it does not exist, and therefore, a person is incapable of explaining how it actually works. Even when scientists are honest and reach this conclusion that natural selection does not exist, they do so in cryptic, concealed terms. For example, cognizant of their extensive research and documentation of the elaborate inborn molecular mechanisms controlling mouse coat color, Harvard researchers paradoxically say, quote, to unravel evolutionary mechanisms in the wild, we must estimate the fitness advantage of adaptive alleles and infer their source, either as new or pre-existing variation, end quote. Now you may ask, what about antibiotic-resistant bacteria? Is not that positive evidence of natural selection working to select for certain bacteria over others? That is a good question. In my own field, we actively work not to overprescribe antibiotics because of the real threat of antibiotic-resistant bacteria, such as MRSA. Some strains of the HIV virus have also demonstrated resistance to antiretroviral drugs. Do any of these observable f do any of these phenomena lend support to the theory of evolution by natural selection? In short, no. The bottom line is that all of these changes involve small molecular changes and none lend support to macroevolution. Bacteria that acquire antibiotic resistance remain bacteria, and an HIV virus that acquires resistance to medication remains a virus. In other words, things certainly change, but they do not change into different things. Now, when I say bacteria acquire antibiotic resistance, acquire in no way, shape, or form implies evolution. In fact, when we look under a microscope and observe how bacteria actually become antibiotic resistant, we see that it has nothing to do with the force that selects. It has everything to do with pre-existing mechanisms. That is, the predominant means of acquisition is heterologous resistant genes from external sources. In plain English, this means bacteria primarily gain antibiotic resistance by getting resistance genes from other bacteria. This happens, for example, when bacteria engage in a mating process called conjugation and resistance genes are transferred from one bacterium to another. Viruses pass resistance genes to bacteria by infecting them with new genetic material. Bacteria can also absorb free-floating naked DNA, and old DNA that codes for resistance can be scavenged from dead or degraded bacteria. The end result of these processes is that those bacteria that are resistant survive in the midst of antibiotics, so they divide and multiply. Because mechanisms of DNA transfer and exchange already exist, bacteria will absorb heterologous DNA regardless of whether antibiotics are used or not. All antibiotics do is kill off all those bacteria that are not resistant. Hence, in this case, the environment does not select, but is a lethal problem. Neither is anything external, causal, and inducing antibiotic resistance. 
The point of all of this is to reemphasize the fact that the adaptive power of survival can be explained by genes that already exist. There is no need to resort to an external mechanism when a clear cellular explanation is apparent. And, by the way, the use of antibiotics is in no way, shape, or form analogous to natural selection. Why is that? Because the use of antibiotics is not natural. Designed antibiotics are deployed in a system by a conscious agent, like a doctor or an experimenter. And that agent has an intelligent purpose for giving the medication in the first place. Human interference with or in the environment, by definition, makes selection non-natural. Because adaptive power is internal, an external adaptive force is neither causal nor necessary. Hence, natural selection does not exist. This will wrap up part 3 of episode 5. Join me next time in part 4 when I will discuss the final two reasons why natural selection does not exist. Because it does not account for biological information and because the fossil record actually is a large reservoir of evidence against evolution by natural selection. Until next time. Thank you for listening. For more valuable content, including transcripts and research notes, please visit truthfinder.org.